Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and prayer, praying, they laid their hands in them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Well, good morning uh, again to all of you. If you missed the introduction, my name is Ben, and I am the pastor here at Resurrection Church. And I want to begin today with a question. What kind of church prepares for a future in which its most trusted and gifted people are sent to do gospel work in other places? How does a church get a vision and a heart for people in other places that it willingly and maybe even joyfully can part with leaders and friends? I think the first four verses of Acts 13 are remarkable, not just for what's said, but also what's unsaid. Think of this passage for a moment from the perspective of the church in Antioch who are sending away their top people. Have you ever thought about what about the people who remained as Saul and Barnabas go off to Seleucia and to Cyprus? What about the church people that didn't go? I think the question that churches have to ask themselves over and over is this one. What are we willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? How deep has the gospel gone into our hearts? And we ask this question when it comes to our neighbors, when it comes to our our church building or church assets, when it comes to the children of our church. And and we've been saying in our our Song of Songs series, uh, the other series that we're doing, that that love, it's not measured by what a person can sort of take or accept, but it's measured by what a person is willing to give. And the deeper and the more profound the love, the greater the ability to sacrifice. See, it's one thing for a church to give money to causes it cares about. Money's great, but like you can always get more. You you can make more. Time is a tougher thing to give because, you know, you can't always get more of it. But it's not the end of the world. But I think it's something quite profound when a church gives its people. Because people don't normally come back. When people are sent out from a church, it's normally for good. Some of you were around when Mike and Brittany were here and they they trained for the gospel ministry and then, you know, six months before the dumb pandemic, you know, we sent them to Halifax and and, and they're there and and they're doing church, they're planting a church out there and they're, they're not coming back, at least, you know, anytime soon. See, as we consider the mission that God is on in the world, the mission that he is inviting sort of the capital C, the big church to, but also our little church, we come to a day when that, that mission demands from us a sacrifice, Now, not sort of in the immediate, but we are committing today to give Frankie Garcia and his wife, Elena, a place in our church and a place in our hearts. But we do that knowing, in all likelihood, it's going to be temporary. I'm asking you to open yourselves to them, knowing that in a year or so, they'll leave. And they're going to leave, hopefully, to plant a church, and it'll be beautiful, and it'll be wondrous, it'll be an answer to prayer, but it will leave a hole here. So as we watch the early church send out its first people, the question we need to spend time considering together is this one. How can we become the kind of church who willingly and sacrificially gives away its time, its money, and its people for the sake of the gospel? We're going to look at this text, see how Saul and Barnabas are are sent out. There's three things we learn about this church. 
First, it's a diverse church. Second, it's a disciplined church. And third, it's a spirit-filled church. Now, if you don't know your, your ancient Near East geography, Antioch is sort of up the coast and a little bit inland from, from Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's in uh, northern Syria, you know, modern-day Turkey. According to Acts chapter 11, you can read the story of it there. The church at Antioch was established when Christians fled the persecution in Jerusalem following Stephen's murder. Um, but it was actually nicknamed the cradle of Christianity because it had this integral role in incubating and growing the fledgling Christian movement. And Barnabas is sent there from the Jerusalem church along with Saul to minister to all these young Christians, all the people they have there. And it's at Antioch, actually, that that what was the way, the early name for the Christian movement, uh, they were first called Christians, which means little Christ, which has endured to this day. And even though the church in Antioch was, was almost entirely Jewish at the beginning, it's quickly expanded beyond that. And I want to show you in, in verse 1, look at the listing of its leaders. Now, it's often, just before I do that, when we read through the Bible, we often skip over the names. It's like, ah, that's inconsequential. Why, do, why does this guy matter? Uh, but a helpful practice when you read the Bible is to ask yourself, well, why did the author put this here? There, there must be a reason. So why, why is it here? Why does Luke think, Dr. Luke, who wrote this book, why does he think these five names are important? Well, there's some clues. So the first person listed is Barnabas. We know, we've, maybe you've heard about Barnabas. He's a leader from the church in Jerusalem. He gets nicknamed by the apostles. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. And he gets sent off into various places to help young Christians and young churches get established. And he's a Jew from Cyprus. So not like an, an Israelite Jew, but he's from Cyprus. Second in the list is Simeon, who's called Niger. Niger in Latin simply means black. And so Simeon, as far as we can tell, was likely a black African Christian. Lucius is, uh, is from Cyrene. That's modern-day Libya. If you're like, where's Libya? Also North Africa. Uh, back when you reread about the birth of the church in Antioch in Acts 11, there are evangelists that go from, uh, from North Africa to Antioch. So we don't know what color uh, Lucius' skin is, but he was an African believer. Menaean is called a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the guy who ruled uh, Galilee during the, the uh, life of Jesus. And the Greek word there, lifelong friend, it literally means someone who grew up with Herod. So Menaean is sort of this upper class, educated, he's one of the elites in Israel, uh, one of the, one of, you know, good friends with like a very powerful person, ethnically a Jew. And then of course we have Saul, the academic, the preacher, the evangelist, the notorious convert, his name is going to change in, in short order in the book of Acts, uh, but he is around too. But if you put these five together, if you look at those descriptions, what you have is a, a multi-class, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-language group of leaders. I think it's what Luke is trying to tell us. And here's why that matters. Because the more mono anything your group is, the less you tend to be aware of a diversity of needs. See, this group, by the, by the sheer fact of where they were from, they would have known about the spiritual situation of cities in North Africa and Eastern Africa, the Mediterranean. They would have cared about those places. In the same way that those of you who grew up in the Maritimes or, or in Vancouver or in the north somewhere, that you instinctively know about the place you're from and you care about the place, I think so too these leaders. And with diversity usually comes a variety of gifts. Healthy churches, they don't tend to have one type of gift. They, they're usually well-rounded. You know, this person's really good about uh, getting things started. This person's really good at prayer. This person's really good at encouragement, you know, and, and so on and so forth. I think the more diverse that we become as a church, the healthier we will be. And I don't just mean skin color. I mean like class, education, vocation, you know, cultural background, languages, and all the rest. Many of you are aware that Frankie and Elena are thinking about planting a church in Gatineau. You know we need to plant a church well and wisely in Gatineau and in Quebec? 
The answer is not Anglophones from southwestern Ontario, like me. Well, well, I mean, we might need your money, but but what we need is we need the cultural intelligence of people who've grown up in Quebec. We need people who speak French as, as their first language. We need people who remember what it was like to grow up in a very traditional French Catholic church. We need people who walk those streets and and who live there, who actually live on that side of the river, not on this side. You know, we've also done some research into the Ottawa Valley, and there's about 10 to 12, maybe 15 small towns, um, you know, west of Ottawa, stretching towards Algonquin Park. And lots of these little towns, you know, two, 3,000 people, they lack any sort of evangelical church, let alone a Reformed church, let alone a a PCA church. How can we plant churches in all these places? I mean, we don't know, but it sure would be great if someone who grew up there could, could help us understand how these places work. See, if we're going to be an effective church in our neighborhood, in our city, in, in our province, and the province beside us, if we're going to plant churches in other parts of Ottawa and Canada, we need to be diverse. In our leadership, in our membership, we need to kind of reflect what's around us. I don't think it's any surprise that out of this church in Antioch came a heart for mission to the ends of the earth. The people there were from the ends of the earth. Sure seems like this is how God often works. You know, Antioch had the nickname in the ancient times, not just the cradle of Christianity, but also the world in a city. And it's no surprise there that the church then looked the same. So how can a church become generous with its time, with its money, with its people? The first thing is by being aware of the needs, and diversity is a great way to get there. So first, a diverse church. Second, a disciplined church. If you look at verse 2, Luke records, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit reveals to them the next part of the plan. Okay, a couple things. First, the way the Greek is worded suggests this is not a special sort of thing that's happening, not a special season of worship and prayer and fasting, but a regular rhythm of worship, prayer, and fasting. And then what, we, then what we can discern is that this church had disciplined itself, had organized itself to seek the Lord. They were, they were, they were setting aside regular times to pray, to worship, and to fast. This is not some one of those hipster fasts for weight loss or whatever. It's a spiritual fast. They're setting aside time to seek God. These sorts of activities are not extraordinary for them. And it's not just the leadership of the church. The context of the comments in verse 2 suggests everyone was doing it or it was unified. Now, we don't know how many people were there, how big it was, but it seems communal. Additionally, the calling of Saul and Barnabas doesn't seem to be the point of the meeting. They're like, we're just having a thing with God. We do this regularly. They're trying to grow in grace. And then this other thing happens in in the middle of it. But we have a picture here of a church disciplining itself to get into healthy habits of seeking God. And I think that's important on a day like today. Because in church world... We often want to jump to the glitzy, exciting kind of events like today, like a guy is being ordained to be a pastor. It's, it's, it's amazing. We can put this in the newsletter. We have, we have this story to tell, etc. But, but Acts 13 tells us you can't skip steps on the way. The habits come first. The calling comes later. And when we see you know, Frankie being ordained and planning to plant a church, that's the fruit of something that began long ago. I mean, long before he ever came to resurrection. Frankie and Elena didn't decide like last week, like, hey, we have an idea. No, no, this has been, there's been a steady cultivation in their hearts uh, for years uh, of a love of Christ and the church. They've been worshiping and praying and reading the scriptures and trying to obey Jesus for a long, long time. And if those things wouldn't, wouldn't have happened, there wouldn't be a today. And similarly for us as a church, all of the gifts we have been given, all the small ways we are training together in the ways of the gospel, all of the ways we've been thankful for what has been given to us, this culminates in where we are today. 
I don't think churches trip and fall into ascending mindset. I think it arises out of a disciplined and vigorous pursuit of God. You know, it might be easy for us to lay a guilt trip on Frankie. That as he plans over this next year that we in our passive, aggressive, kind of Canadian way, we insist like, hey, like we hired you, we, we brought you to Canada, we, we made room for you in our hearts, we trained you, and now you owe us. You can't leave. Do you ever wonder, the church in Antioch, they probably housed and fed Saul and Barnabas for months, gave them, gave them room, gave them space to, to lead things, and now these guys want to leave, and they want money for their boat tickets, you know, on the way? Like, the church could have held it over them. Said, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but they didn't. And they didn't because that's not the way the gospel works. See, in the kingdom of God, it's all a gift. It's all grace. Everything we have is, is to use to spread the kingdom of God. And so when God calls a person in our midst to go plant a church in a different place, the gospel says, as freely as you have received, you give. And there's just no reticence. In Antioch, they're like, you're called? All right, you know, we're behind you. But listen, the deep habits required for big gifts, they're built in the normal week-in and week-out habits of grace. Worshiping together, praying together, fasting together, studying the scriptures together, the, the boring, mundane parts of the Christian life, ready us for the more dramatic moments. When I worked in campus ministry, we had this saying, we would used to say, be careful what you pray for. And what we, would, and what we, what we noticed over time is that when people began to pray regularly for something, uh, say like a missionary to go to the Middle East or for a new campus ministry to get started, over and over, God would answer those prayers with the people who prayed them. <laughs> the people who prayed most fervently and most regularly for new ministries start, like often help start new ministries. And those who prayed fervently and regularly for missionaries, well, they tended to become missionaries. Not in every case. But we would jokingly tell students, just be careful what you pray for, because God tends to use little habits to make big changes. You know, I wish we got more insight into the spiritual life of the church in Antioch. What, what were all the things they did? How did it all work? But I just think the lesson is, if we want to get to the, the big, grand moments as a church, we must be steady in the regular ones. Third, the church at Antioch was diverse, it was disciplined, and third, it was filled with the Spirit. So during their fasting and their worship, the Holy Spirit says, end of verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They fast, they pray some more, they lay hands on them and sent them off. It's this remarkable moment in the life of the church. Because the stage is set for part three of the original mission given by Jesus. When Jesus left, he said, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, in Judea and Samaria second, the, the, the provinces around there, and then to the very ends of the earth. And the very ends of the earth, that part, that starts right here. Up until now, it's been pretty haphazard, you know, wherever people happen to scatter to. But the Spirit now intentionally says, you too, mission to the ends of the earth starts right here. Systematic, let's go. Some interesting things pop out. There's no mention of the mechanism by which the Spirit spoke. Now, we do know from other parts of Acts that there's this guy in the Antioch church named Agabus who prophesies about, you know, correctly about a famine that's coming for Jerusalem. Other prophets were, it says it existed in this church as well. Um, and so, so perhaps this message of the Spirit came through one of these prophets. But maybe it was just an idea. Maybe it's just at the bi-weekly meeting of prophets and teachers, you know. Um, it, God can work through our imaginations and through our mental processes as easy as he can through direct messages. Maybe the Spirit somehow spoke in the midst of the worship service. Like, we just don't know the mechanism. We also don't know many of the details. It's like Saul and Barnabas are set aside for the mission to which they were called. That seems kind of vague. Where are they supposed to go? 
What's the goal? As like a strategically oriented person, like I'm just deeply bothered by like the lack of details and planning that we see here. If you do some geographical work tracing the journeys of Paul, it just seems he goes where it seems strategic and wise until like a mob throws him out or the spirit really closes the door and, you know, forces him to go somewhere else. And so right after this, what we learn is Saul and Barnabas head to the coast, that's Seleucia, they catch a ship to the nearest city. As far as we know, the spirit didn't tell them to go to Salamis on the island of Cyprus, but geographically it makes good sense. It's pretty close. Barnabas grew up there. Remember, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Maybe he knows some people. We don't know the exact reason. I guess what I'm trying to say is that though the spirit speaks directly to them, there are all sorts of things left out. Life with the spirit not a major highway. <laughs> it feels a lot more like a meandering path, more like following a lantern through the woods on a summer night than having a street light. You can see the next step, maybe the next two or three, but not many more. How did Frankie know he was called the Quebec? As far as he's told me, the Spirit didn't speak audibly to him. But the Spirit did send a wonderful young French woman to a Reformed seminary deep in the heart of Mississippi where Frankie happened to be at that exact same time. And as Elena spoke of the spiritual condition of her friends and her neighbors and her city, Frankie knew that he had to both, A, marry this woman, and second, you know, get himself to Quebec somehow to help. And as Frankie and Elena took steps of faith, they looked for a church to host them, AKS. They went to church planting assessment. Doors have continued to open. As I mentioned before, we often want to skip to the day, we often want to skip the day-to-day walking with the Spirit in hopes that he'll just drop a fortune cookie out of the sky with what we should do. And even if he does, even if you get that fortune cookie or like a really clear message, it still lacks all kinds of details that would normally be helpful. We need to persist in steady fellowship with the Spirit if we want to see where he's leading us. Do I know what God's going to call our church to in the next three to five, ten years? I mean, I got lots of ideas. (laughs) But, But no, I don't really. Maybe we'll plant another church. Maybe we'll buy a building. Like, I don't know. But what I think we're going to find out is that God's will is not a cloud shaped like Winnipeg or something, it's, but we'll find it in the day-to-day walking with the Spirit to see what kind of doors He opens. One other thing, one, one other thing I want to note here is that the way this calling unfolds for, for Saul and Barnabas uh, guards against two errors. First, it guards against the dangers of institutionalism. See, Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, are not selected by a committee. Not, not just sort of, you know, picked by some, um, some manager somewhere. The Spirit was deeply involved in their calling. The Spirit speaks to them and directs them. You know, we're a Presbyterian church, and we sort of love institutionalizing things. Like, it's sort of like our thing. Like, can we, can we make an institution out of this? We can get caught up in our processes instead of sensing what the Spirit may be doing. And Galatians tells us, walk in step with the Spirit, which means don't lag behind, but also don't get too far ahead. How fast is he going? Let's try to go his pace. The Antioch church waits on the spirit, but when he moves, they move. So it guards against institutionalism, a ditch over here, but it also guards against individualism. See, we live in a day of a very self-constructed identity. We're on, it's like a whole sermon unto itself, but on a whole number of different levels, we are each trying to decide who we want to be and what we should do. And in church world, this, this crops up too. You probably know of examples where someone declared themselves to be a pastor or missionary just because they felt an internal calling to be so. Or uh, on the more disturbing side, we see a, a formerly disgraced pastor declare themselves fit to be a pastor again, even though there's no obvious process of repentance or restoration. But they're like, I'm ready. And they just start again. And it's, it's individualism. and It's not healthy. But for Saul and Barnabas, 
We do not see either just men, or we do not see sort of men telling the church about their calling, not men who are self-accredited. We see this cooperation where, 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 where the Spirit calls and the church lays their hands on them based on the work of the Spirit to send them off. The laying of hands, which we're going to do here in a few minutes. It's a visible symbol of the power and the authority uh, on the behalf of the church. It's the church who helps people decide on their calling, not, not people by themselves. And I think the process here guards against both of these ditches, individualism, institutionalism. But in summary, what kind of church can give away its best people joyfully? I think a church that's disciplined, diverse, and spirit-filled. But very briefly, let me ask, one, ask and answer one more question. Why? Why would a church want to do that? We've answered like the how, but what if you don't feel any motivation? <laughs> what about the why? Because it's hard. It's hard when people leave. It leaves voids. I still walk down Mike and Britt's old street. They lived, used to live one street away from me, so it's easy for me to do that. But, but I see the house where they lived, and I still miss them. And I'm sure lots of you miss them as well. So why do we do what we do? I mean, the answer, it's the answer we always give, right? At one point, there was darkness and no light. At one point, according to Titus, we lived in shadows, and we hated ourselves, and we hated each other. And one day, when all hope was extinguished, when all the other lights had gone out, the word became flesh and, and, and dwelt among us and moved into our neighborhood. At last, a king, born to us, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Why do we move to strange neighborhoods? Because God moved to ours. Why do we move across countries? Because <laughs> worlds were crossed by the Son of God. Why do we ordain a man knowing that in all likelihood he's going to leave? Because God sent first. And if there's no gospel underneath any of this, then we won't persist because it's too hard. It costs us too much. But if the gospel's true, then it changes everything. God sent and so we send. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this church at Antioch which in some ways is responsible for uh, a Christian church ending up in Canada, that, that people have gone for, for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years, people have been sent out by ordinary churches just like ours to preach the gospel and to share the good news of Jesus. So as we ordain Frankie in a few minutes, as we reflect on this process continuing in our midst, would you continue to give us a sacrificial mindset as a church to continue loving him, loving you, and loving Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray, amen.